I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians 2 and uh, verses 5 through 8. As together we continue on in Paul's epistle, Paul's letter to his beloved Philippian church. You remember that Paul was writing this particular epistle from prison, and the Philippians had just sent him a gift to help sustain him. The uh, state, the Roman state, did not provide for prisoners. Uh, you were in jail awaiting trial, and the uh, two punishments, or there were actually three punishments that could be meted out. There was a fine, uh, there was corporal punishment, which was punishment of the body, or capital punishment. And uh, what Paul was accused of, which was treason, that is, uh, subverting the government of Caesar and asserting that there was another Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he would have been subject to capital punishment if found guilty. Uh, but in the meantime, while he was awaiting the verdict, they were taking care of him. They were sending him uh, what he needed, and he appreciated that very much. But as we've seen, he was more concerned about what was going on in the church in Philippi, their state, and uh, that they would be growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. We saw last uh, time we looked at the letter how there was probably division and conflict. They were doing very well in taking care of, uh, as one commentator put it, the foreign affairs of the church, dealing with, uh, with Paul. But within the church, there was division and strife, and Paul certainly wanted that to be brought to an end through the power of Christ. But uh, before we read about what he uh, urged them to do, let's turn to the Lord and let's ask for his blessing. Please join me. Gracious God, I do pray now, Lord, as we look to your word once again, that you would be the light of our minds and that you would help us. Help me to divide it aright. Let me not go astray to the left or to the right to uh, ignore what you have said, to thrust upon the word, my own personal opinions, or anything like that. May I simply be a messenger of that wonderful message that your ambassador, Paul, delivered not just to the church in Philippi, but to us in this day and age. What he wrote, we know, is just as important now, and just as thrilling and awesome in, in its import. So help us, O oh Lord, to take these things to heart, and then apply them in our own lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And amen. Reading now, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Let this mind be in you, which, also, uh, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I uh, mentioned just now that Paul was dealing with the inner discord that had been occurring within the church, affecting them. Uh, and he knew very well that the majority of uh, discontentment and quarrels and discord within the church come from that most ancient of sins. And that most ancient of sins is, of course, can you guess? Pride. Very good. It's pride. It was, after all, pride that caused the devil to fall from his station uh, as an angel. In Isaiah 14, 12, we read, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. 
yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And so we see there that the devil, filled with pride, wanted to exalt himself over the Lord. He saw it as unfitting, unfair, that he uh, had to be a servant in the kingdom. And so he rebelled and he took those angels with him. And when he fell, of course, he desired not to fall merely himself, but also to take God's creation with him. And so it was pride that the devil used uh, in the garden to tempt Eve and her husband Adam. So we read in Genesis 3, 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband, and, we, and he with her, and he ate. Eve was beguiled by the serpent, told she would be like God, and that became her desire. She was filled with pride, and so she fell. And it is pride that the devil has been using to sow discord in the church and also in the world since that time. How many things we once knew were sins are now being justified in the name of pride. We're proud of things that before we knew were abominable. And how uh, we mere mortals are found, form, fond of being proud of everything. We accomplish something and we are suddenly puffed up with pride. I, I mean, we've gotten to the point where we are proud, deathly proud, of, of things we didn't even do, such as the place we were born. How many of you chose the place where you were born? I didn't think so. Or the color of your skin. How many of you chose that? Nobody, obviously. These are things that were innate, things that were chosen by God, but somehow we are proud of all of these things. Uh, we're proud of our accomplishments. We're proud of our lack of accomplishment. We're proud of our ancestors, although we didn't do anything to create them either. It's, it's an absurd situation. There's nothing that we can't find to be proud of. And how when we are exalted to some station in this world, given some honor, uh, oh, how we become haughty and find that uh, any real or perceived uh, indignity, any attack upon our, our honor and so on, how we find that to be absolutely unbearable. We won't swallow anything. That, unfortunately, is something that the devil has been using for years and years and centuries and millennia in order to trip us up, to get us to quarrel, to fight, to divide. He uses it to create schism and heresy within the church. Now, in the ancient world, if there had been, let's say, a mine cave-in, it would have astounded people to see a king leave his palace, leave his throne, take off his robes and his finery, lay down his scepter, dismiss his servants, and then put on the humble clothing of a slave and struggle to free those slaves who were trapped in that mine. It would have amazed them even more if he lost his own life in the process, if his struggle was unto death in order to free them. Such a, a stoop a stoop from royalty to, to acting as a slave in order to free others. That would have been unheard of. And yet, Paul reminds the church that Jesus did infinitely more than that. The stoop that he made was so much further than even the emperor himself could have made that it's incomprehensible. 
And what an example that is to us, or should be within the church. As Wu's put it, the only person in the world who had a right to assert his rights waived them, <laughs> set them aside for your sake, brother and sister. That was why he did it. He came into this world laying aside all of the honors and the glory that had been his for all eternity. Now, the attitude of self-renunciation that Jesus took to himself was not so that he would merely obtain an added glory for himself, but so that he would have the ability to help others. It was his desire that he would not just help others, obviously, but also set an example for us in that. We'll discuss that further. And that obviously the point that Paul is making is if Christ can adopt this, this attitude of, of infinite humility, then how should we, his followers, have that same attitude of self-abasement? of humility, such that we do not take umbrage when other people uh, supposedly knock our, our station or uh, treat us in a way that we, we feel is unworthy of us and so on. He's saying, Paul is saying that the attitude of the church, and of course the church is not the building, the church is, is you guys. The church should have an attitude of oneness, of lowliness, of helpfulness. The same kind of attitude that was manifested by our Savior Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. And it is exactly because he is Lord that he provides us with a divine example. Now, Paul will, in his other epistles, he'll, he'll make the note, follow me as I follow Christ. I've noted that sometimes it is easier for us to follow Paul because, of course, Paul uh, was merely human. He was not the God-man. And so we see in Paul an imperfect example following a perfect example, and then we in turn follow that imperfect example. Brothers and sisters, this is something that hasn't ended with the death of Paul. That should be something that we strive to do as well. As we see people who are ahead of us in sanctification, that is, the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and we see in them the same kind of virtues reflected that Christ had, we should be seeking to emulate them. It has been a wonderful thing in my life that the Lord has set mentors in my path. I hope he has done the same with you. Men who modeled Christ for me and whom, in turn, I was able to model myself on. Everything that I have learned about being a pastor a father, a husband, these are things that were modeled for me by other men who were further along. And sometimes it was from books, but most often it was from a deliberate example. And brothers and sisters, one of the things that we need to remember is our duty to do that for those who are newer in the faith to us, to be willing to bring them into our households, show them things like family worship and child raising. You do not know how often I have sat with a couple who are in the midst of marriage counseling, and they're in the midst of marriage counseling precisely because they have never seen a pattern of Christian marriage in their lives. It has never been part of their upbringing. They, in some cases, they didn't have dads present in the household, or if they did, that father did not know the Lord, did not follow him. You can show them what it is to be a Christian husband, a Christian father, a Christian dad, a Christian mother a Christian wife in the way that you live out your life following Christ. Your example will be imperfect. You will sin. 
certainly, but you can show them what that looks like. And so Paul is saying our great example within the church should be the Lord of glory. He says that, uh, and this is unfortunately, if I wanted to get incredibly theological with you, which I, I, I do not, I will admit, I do not believe that uh, Paul was writing this you know, primarily, although obviously he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, with the intention of talking about uh, the deity of Christ and how it interacts with his humanness and so on. Uh, and he certainly wasn't using this to be the groundwork for the canonic theory. You can go look that up at home. It's, a, uh, it's the idea that Christ emptied himself of his divinity. Uh, he did not do that. He did not empty himself of his divinity. He veiled it, setting aside. Now, I, I do want to say some things so that there is some, some theological basis for the other things that I'm going to say. You'll notice in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, and you remember, he's been counseling them to have one mind, one common attitude, one set of, of true beliefs about uh, Christ and in the church. He wants them to, to be in one accord. He says, let this mind be in you, which, all, uh, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, there are, uh, in those verses, two words that are very important. The first one is morphe, uh, that is form, being in the form of God, and then schema, that is fashion, existing in the form of God, recognized in fashion as a human being. Now, um, morphe in Greek philosophy was very important. The form, the essential substance of something, it, re it referred to the abiding nature uh, of something, and he knew that uh, people in the Hellenistic world would have understood what he meant by this. So what is he saying about Jesus Christ in saying he being in the form of God? Well, he is saying that in his inner essential abiding nature, he is God. He has always been God. Very God, a very God. That was what the, the church council struggled for in the early centuries in the person of Christ, that he was not like God. You remember that uh, Nicaea, they had this giant dispute with the people who were the followers of Arius called the Arians who said, no, no, Jesus is like God, but he is not very God, a very God. He's not of the same substance. He is of similar substance. They said that they were debating at the time uh, simply one, one tittle, one little jot uh, in, in, that changed the word from homoi, uh, rather homoousius to homoousius, that is of the same substance or of similar substance. And praise be to God, Nicaea got it right and said, no, Jesus is of the same substance with God. And that's the point that, that Paul is making here. He was always in, uh, in his essence God. That didn't change. But what did he do? He added to himself another nature. He added to his Godhead humanness. He added to us, uh, added to that mortal, uh, the, the, the mortality that we have in order that he could be truly our representative. So what then Paul is saying is that Jesus has always been God by nature. There was never a time before Jesus he was never not in existence. He is indeed the Son of God, begotten by God, but eternally begotten by God. And he is, as he says elsewhere, the express image of the deity. There is no difference between him. 
and the other members of the Godhead. We have in that one what, three who's. We have one God in three persons, but none of them are greater than the other. Now, we can talk about the, uh, economic, the idea of economic subordination, the idea that in redemption, the Son willingly subordinated himself to the Father, and then in turn, the Holy Spirit willingly subordinated himself to the Son and the Father in order for the sake of, of redeeming us. But we understand that in essence, there is no gradation. The Father is not really in his essence greater than the Son. The Son is not really in his essence greater than the, uh, the Holy Spirit. And he has all of the divine attributes, has had them eternally. So what happened? What does it mean to say that Christ emptied himself? Well, the idea of emptying himself is abasing himself. He, he set aside many of his privileges, many of the things that he had. I use the example, it's a flawed, every, in theology, every example in some sense, when you're talking about the Trinity, when you're talking about the Godhead, all of the examples break down at some point. I used originally, though, the example of the king setting aside his uh, divine, not divine, his um, What's the word I'm looking for? His, his royal prerogatives. He set aside uh, his robes. He set aside his finery. He set aside his, his sovereignty over the nation and uh, all of the instruments of power. He, he was no longer in command. He took upon himself the place of a slave, the clothing of a slave, and did the work of a slave in order uh, to help his people. So too, in order to redeem us, Christ had to become as one of us and not as an emperor with all of the pomp and circumstance, but rather as a bondservant. Jesus, we need to remember, could not divest himself of his Godhead. He could not change his essential essence. He could not become less than God. However, in becoming man as well, in adding that nature to himself, he concealed it for a time that it would not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. So he took his glory away from the view of men by concealing it. Calvin puts it this way, I answer that the abasement of the flesh was notwithstanding like a veil by which his divine majesty was concealed. And that's one of the reasons why, for instance, he, uh, after he takes the disciples up on the Mount of Transfiguration and the veil is lifted just a little and they see his glory, his, it's a wonderful word, refulgence. They see the splendor of, uh, of God like unto what Moses experienced when he was talking with God and his face glowed because of the reflected radiance of the Godhead. The disciples on the mountaintop got a moment's view, just a, a brief glimpse of the true glory of Christ. And of course, what did Christ tell them? He said, don't tell anyone what you said yet, because the time had not yet come for his glory to be revealed. So Calvin goes on to say, on this account, he did not wish that his transfiguration should be made public until after his resurrection. And when he perceives that the hour of his death is approaching, he then says, Father, glorify the Son. You see that in John 17. He laid down his glory in the same way that he lays down his life and he takes it up again. But he did not note this. He did not regard his glory as something that he could not let slip. He did not regard that glory in the way that a miser views his money. He cannot part with it under any circumstances. This is mine. Now, truly, the miser's money is his. 
but his not parting with it is a stumbling block to others. It's something that does not profit him. Christ, by setting aside, laying down his glory for a time, achieved even greater glory, if that's possible uh, for a member of the Godhead. Sometimes we use language, you know, as though it sounds like something was added to God. Nothing can be added to God, but the glory that Jesus had was even more glorious after he had accomplished his redemption. Um, The question is, therefore, what did he empty himself of? What was it that was put down? And the answer is, so many of those things that he had from eternity in his Godhead. So many of those royal prerogatives. He gave up, for instance, his, as uh, uh, William Hendrickson puts it, his favorable relation to the divine law. Now, you and I were born into this world with an unfavorable relation to the divine law. You and I were all guilty of original sin when we entered into this world. We entered with a negative debit against our names, and then we added to that. We continued to sin, and our relationship to the law got worse and worse and worse. Christ, who is the author of the law, he had no such impediment. He had no burden of guilt resting upon him. There was no need for him to obey the law that he had obeyed perfectly from all eternity, and which was actually a reflection of his own perfect nature. So in coming into the world, what had to happen? He had to take our sin nature, our bad relationship to the law upon his own shoulders. He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that was one of the first things that he laid down. Secondly, of course, he gave up his riches. Now, when we think of riches, we think in terms primarily of money, but we are talking about uh, the riches of being God himself, the creator of the universe, the one who had never known a moment's discomfort, the one who had never received anything less than perfect glory, the one who had dwelt in the heaven of heavens, And he laid that aside, and instead he came into the world and he lived the life of poverty, extreme poverty. He went to a backwater uh, dominion of the Roman Empire, and there he lived as a servant. And he, we remember as an itinerant wandering around, he, he didn't have a house to sleep in. Uh, he didn't have an animal to ride on. He walked around on what my mother, uh, or rather he traveled on what my mother used to call Shank's Pony, which is uh, when you're walking on your, your legs, it comes from the idea that these are your, your, your shanks. You remember, anybody see Braveheart? By any chance, long shanks, long legs is what it literally meant. So in any event, uh, that was quite the aside. Uh, sorry, I, I apologize. I, I do that sometimes. I, I mean, he didn't even have his own tomb to be buried in. Think about this. He laid aside infinite riches, and he took upon himself the heaviest debt imaginable, the debt of his people before the law. So that's something else he gave up. Obviously, he gave up the heavenly glory that he experienced. He who was worthy of all glory and honor and praise and had been praised by choirs of angels. We saw this morning how when Jesus comes into the world, the angels accompany him and they praise him once again. He laid that all aside and instead he was willing to be humiliated. This was the Lord of glory who was scourged for our sake, who was, excuse me, (coughs) who was mocked and vilified for our sake. 
he was willing to, to lay aside that which he was worthy of and endure the very opposite. The one who was most worthy endured the worst disparagement, the worst humiliation. Now, this is something, brothers and sisters, that we need to remember. God's people have always been disparaged. We as Americans, for many years, forgot that, I think. But you go to the rest of the world, and you see how Christians are treated. In two-thirds of the world's countries, Christians are either encountering soft or hard persecution. We gradually are, are encountering soft persecution, and we're amazed. How dare you treat us like this? Well, is the servant more worthy than the master? Our Lord came into the world, and was he treated with honor? No, he was treated with contempt. He was a man who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And if the master was, then why should we expect any sort of different treatment from the world? In fact, if the world loves you, that's where the problem is. And the church desperately wants the world to love them. That's why we're always seeking for some sort of compromise. If the world loves us, it means we've joined the world and thus we've lost our mission. Brothers and sisters, we don't serve the world. We serve the kingdom. We need to advance, therefore, the interests of the kingdom, not the world. Jesus came into the world as the ultimate example of the, the, the king of the kingdom. He was disparaged by it. And, of course, he gave up his independent exercise of authority. He uh, was willing to subordinate himself to the Father, to act as a son, to, to learn obedience by what he suffered. But all of this in his human nature, not in his divine nature. So, he remains the Son of God always, and he lays aside those elements of divinity for the sake of our redemption in his human nature. And he suffers indignities. But he didn't just suffer humiliation. The world's opprobrium poured upon him for our sake. He suffered other things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes it this way. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Note that Christ continued under the power of death for a time because we know he was res resurrected. And when he was resurrected, having paid the price for our sin, no longer having any sin or never actually having any sin of his own, but no longer owing that sin debt that he had perfectly discharged, he was raised again and he entered into glory and he will be permanently glorified. The wonderful thing is he glorified human flesh when he did that. You and I who had fallen so far from glory, he restored that honor to the human frame. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, that we might be made after his likeness. That was the incarnation and the birth of Christ. Since we're going through that in Luke, I'm not going to stress it very much. But his life was a life of suffering. His life was a life in which he was not esteemed. As I said, if anybody had a, a right to be... Uh, 
I was about to use a, a terrible military phrase. If anybody was up, uh, had a right to, to feel that his rights had been subjected to indignity, uh, it was Jesus. If anybody had a right to be sorry, it was him. And yet he didn't, did he? He who was about to go through the ultimate injustice or non-justice in one sense of suffering God's wrath poured out, uh, out on him in our place did not complain. He did go and pray in the garden, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. But that, brothers and sisters, was a demonstration of the fact that it was not possible to take the cup away from him. Had the cup of God's wrath been taken away from Jesus Christ, you and I could not be redeemed. Remember that. When somebody says there are many ways to God, pa, rubbish, hogwash, only Christ can open the door to heaven. And it was by his atoning death on the cross. And therefore, it is only by being in him that we can go in. Well, let me just make one application of all of this to us. And I, I hope it's the original application that Paul was making. First, I want you to see that Christ's humility is perfect. Absolutely perfect. Our humility, on the other hand, is imperfect but we should strive to emulate that humility. Um, John Calvin wrote something absolutely wonderful about this. He said there's, what Paul is not trying to do is to, he's not trying to compare the humility of Christ with the humility of the church as though he was comparing some things that were roughly similar. He says this, this is not a comparison between things similar, but in the way of greater and less. Christ's humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest ignominy. Our humiliation consists in refraining from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. He gave up his right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves more than we ought. Hence, he sets out with this, that inasmuch as he was in the form of God, he reckoned it not an unlawful thing for him to show himself in that form, yet he emptied himself. Since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height, how unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. If we are Christians, if we are truly followers of Christ, if we're believers in the sovereignty of God, how stupid it is for us to act pridefully. How inappropriate. I, I mean, technically speaking, the most ridiculous theological oxymoron I can think about is proud Calvinist. You confess that you were a wretch, totally depraved and unable to save yourself, and yet you're filled with pride. <laughs> I was the best worm there is. No. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm sorry, but brothers and sisters, we are all recipients of grace. The ground, as the saying goes, is equal at the foot of the cross. And remember the example that Christ set while he was here on earth. Again and again, he strove with disciples who were constantly trying to exalt themselves. Let me be first in your kingdom when you establish it here on earth. Let me sit at your right hand, the place of honor. Oh, and let my brother sit on the left hand, the secondary place. But me, me, me. What did Jesus do? He gave him that beautiful example at the Lord's Supper when he was about to go through the worst trial that any person has ever encountered in their entire life. What did he do? He takes off his garments and he assumes the lowest role in any household in the Hellenistic and Roman world. The lowest slave was the one who had the awful job of washing feet 
at the end of the day, not just because they were stinky by nature, but because everybody walked around in sandals on roads that were made of, of mud and had generations of animal droppings on them. And so this poor slave would have to wash the feet of the people who came in. And yet that is what Jesus did. And so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, in the modern world, the idea of us washing feet when we don't walk around in, in sandals, although some feet are, yeah, I, I wouldn't want anybody in this congregation to have to deal with my feet. Um, it, it's an awful experience, even for me. Um, but the... Uh, it, it, it's archaic, obviously. But are there ways, let me ask you this, are there ways that we can humble ourselves in similar manner to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ? Can strive to come down to the lowest level? Can give up our rights? Can empty ourselves of our pride? Can think also, perhaps this person who is so abrasive, who is so difficult, who is so awkward, perhaps I need to serve them. Perhaps I need to love them as Christ loved them instead of getting our dudgeon up and being very, very upset. We are a people, brothers and sisters, who should never be disgruntled with one another. We should always be gruntled, believe it or not. It's a wonderful old word, and we don't use it enough. I strive now in 2024 to be gruntled before you. We, we need to be a people who are following that greatest example that we have ever been given. The author of Hebrews stresses in his first chapter, I won't read it all, it's, it's, it's divine, it's exalted. He, he stresses how much greater Jesus is than the angels. He stresses his divinity. I use that chapter, Hebrews 1, particularly when I'm dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses who think that Jesus is Michael the archangel. It's a wonderful chapter to bring before them. But he also stresses the manhood of Christ. The fact that he too has suffered. Therefore in all things he had to be, this is Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And then Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who, can sympathize, who cannot rather sympathize with our weakness but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Have you ever contemplated seriously the fact that Jesus suffered as a man here on earth? That he has experienced going before you, he has experienced all the indignities, far worse than we ever will. All of the difficulties, all of the hurts, all of the sorrows, all of the hungers, all of the pains, has been tempted even to sin, but has never sinned. Uh, there's a, a, a hymnist, her name is Susan C. Almluff, who wrote uh, this. I'm, I'm only going to quote two stanzas of what she wrote. And I'm not going to sing it, uh, because I, I, I love you guys. Hast thou been hungry, child of mine? I too have needed bread. For forty days I tasted not till by the angels fed. Hast thou been thirsty on the cross? I suffered thirst for thee. I promise to supply thy need. My child, come unto me. When thou art sad and tears fall fast, my heart goes out to thee. For I wept over Jerusalem, the place so dear to me. 
When I came to Lazarus' tomb, I wept my heart with sore. I'll comfort thee when thou dost weep, till sorrows all are o'er. Brothers and sisters, the example of Christ should resonate in our lives. We should be willing to lay down all of our honors in order to serve one another. I'll leave you with just one example. Um, George Washington was far from being a perfect Christian, but he was a Christian. And he, uh, there are many examples from his life that are worthy of emulation. But one immediately stands out. It was, uh, he came upon a work detail of the Continental Congress Army. Uh, they were, uh, I've read two different versions, either erecting a barricade or erecting a bridge. But the, uh, the problem was common in both. And it was that they had a beam, a huge log that was too heavy for the detail to lift by themselves. There was a corporal who was standing by and encouraging them to, to try harder. And uh, he, uh, uh, he rode up, and he was wearing, um, he was wearing a, a cloak. Uh, and he asked the uh, corporal, uh, why aren't you helping them? And <laughs> the corporal said, well, because I'm a corporal, of course. I, I give the orders. And so uh, Washington got down off his horse and put his own shoulder. He was actually a very large man. Uh, put his own shoulder to the, uh, the beam and helped them to get it into place. And then the terrified corporal realized, seeing underneath his cloak his actual rank and so on, he said, and so, corporal, if you ever need help again, call for the commander-in-chief. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, it should be the case that we are not willing to take, we are not willing to say that any job within the kingdom is beneath us. Brothers and sisters, we should be willing to serve one another, even in doing things that would disgust others that would seem like a lowering of ourselves. When we consider the distance between us and Christ and what he was willing to do for us, not because we were good, because we aren't, (laughs) when we were enemies and rebels, he was willing to suffer ultimate humiliation, infinitely stooping in order to raise us up. Therefore, if we will not lean down to help our brothers and sisters, to die to self when necessary, to swallow our grievances, to set them aside, then how inappropriate is it for us to say we're truly following the example of Christ? Let us love one another selflessly and be willing to humble ourselves, as Paul said we ought, and set the example in humbling himself as he followed Christ. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you that you gave us an example of perfect humility to follow. Christ, who is worthy of all honor and praise and glory. Christ, who sustains the very universe. He is the one who was willing to stoop so low for our sake. Therefore, let us not be people who are filled with pride. Lord, we become proud of so many things. Let us instead be people who strive after humility, thinking small thoughts of ourselves, but great thoughts of God. That is, after all, the key for us to decrease and for Christ to increase. If God is big in us, we know, O Lord, that we will be small, and that's the way it should be. Help us then to belittle ourselves and to enlarge Christ, to boast in him. O Lord, may it be the case in our church. We pray this.